today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, fixing the acquisition problems that are holding agencies back, pushing computing superpower to the edge, and the new adversary for your cyber talent is other agencies. It's Tuesday, January 26, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A system overloads the cause of the latest outage of the electronic health record system at the Department of Veterans Affairs. The system went down Thursday at the VA facility in Roseburg, Oregon, for about four hours. The agency's putting its plan to deploy the system at its Boise, Idaho facility next on hold. Two members of Congress will ask the Government Accountability Office to look at the Thrift Savings Plan's new website and record-keeping transition. Congresswomen Eleanor Holmes Norton and Abigail Spanberger write to Comptroller General Gene Dodaro for GAO to examine the, quote, planning, contract award, and implementation of the system and how the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board oversaw it. Four other members of the House co-signed the letter. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for defense talks. It's happening September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup of stars and register through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal Bureau of Investigation will spend $400 million through the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract to upgrade its infrastructure. It's the latest award in the EIS vehicle. Keith Nakasone's federal senior strategist, VMware. He's former deputy assistant commissioner for acquisition in the office of the IT category at the Federal Acquisition Service, General Services Administration. Keith, welcome. It's good to see you again. All the emphasis on EIS may be in, overblown a little bit. These transitions from all of these contracts, from one to the successor, seem to be in kind of a state of limbo, at least right now. What's your sense of how we got here? And what's your sense of how we can make these transitions easier? Welcome. Thanks for having me, Francis. One, one of the things that we, you know, we talk about in these large acquisitions is the complexity and also the um the process that the acquisition workforce goes through. So one of the things that they need to consider is, and this is not necessarily just related to EIS, but from a common theme of putting these large acquisitions together is having those collaborative upfront discussions, but also not specifying 100% of the requirements. It's really getting down to what is the mission and business outcomes that the agencies are trying to achieve, right? What are the pain points? How do they um, build acquisition solutions to meet the needs of tomorrow, but also being able to um, articulate the objectives and the goals and the priorities and staying away from trying to deliver these 100% requirements because let's let's look at the entire IT infrastructure. It is so complex and it's getting more complex every single day. So as we we work through these process, we, we have to create like this IT marketplace to deliver solutions in a more agile, more flexible and more meaningful manner. And 
you know, building this one and done and these large acquisitions where you don't have any flexibility or the um, specifications are so tight, um, you're going to have these um, growing issues. And so, you know, being able to have those collaborative moments up front and being able to um, have these active engage, engagements with the private sector and, and public sector joint together way before an acquisition comes into play will yield a lot of benefit moving forward. What do those conversations look like? What takes place ideally in those collaborative discussions? Who's collaborating? Who's at the table? And what kind of information are they exchanging? That is a really good question because this is one of the pain points that I felt when uh, even when I was in government. But the roundtables tend to consist of, you know, the CIOs, the CTOs, and the CISOs. But when we look at these large acquisitions, it really needs to bring in the broader community, the, the CFO, the, the CAOs, and the CIOs all together so that when you have these collaborative moments, you will be able to adjust and understand frame of reference of how do we win all together by having these collaborative moments, but under also understanding everybody's um, roles within the acquisition process. And if we understand that and we, and we work together to uh, bring solutions together, it will be a, a much, it would yield much better success downstream. When you talk about having acquisition, financial management, and IT all at the table in that, and probably personnel should be involved too, that sounds like Fatara Nirvana, Keith. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a um, process where I think it, it, it definitely will, um, uh, so people have understood, uh, better understanding of the challenges that each of the entities have to work work through, right? Because there's acquisition regulations, there's financial management regulations, but there's also IT requirements. And let's not forget, cybersecurity is now on the forefront of everything um, uh, when we talk about acquisitions moving forward. What's the right dialogue between industry and government look like in that collaboration discussion way before you're actually writing and and so let's get away from writing requirements i'll give you that because everybody says that's a good idea but what what's that conversation look like too what what is industry offering of value to government and what is government offering a value to industry in that collaboration so within industry having those roundtable sessions when we talk about innovations and technologies and when we're moving forward i'll, I'll give you a prime example like multi-cloud adoption um, you know, it's very complex, it's challenging, and, and there's a lot of um, information out there saying, wow, this is way too hard to achieve. But if you bring the innovation and technology and you bring the groups together to have that early on discussions, it will yield that better synergy downstream where you're building acquisitions and building the cloud marketplace so that you don't... Um, have a uh, contract where you can't deliver solutions where it's flexible, agile, because as you move uh, downstream and you start building um, and modernizing the IT infrastructure and, and modernizing the app, apps um, in the cloud, you're, you're gonna see that there's gonna be a shift 
within the people, the workforce. You're going to see some shifts in the business processes as well as the technology, right? The technology tools will, will, um, will also have some changes as you look at the entire ecosystem. So as we go through that process um, and, and we look and we explore the new opportunities that are coming out of the software factories, such as Air Force and the, and the Army, we see that, that accelerated movement of how the organization is being comprised of different uh, procurements, different um, staff, and and the way they work in these agile development work groups. How much of the mindset change of moving from requirements to outcomes is cultural, and how much of it is policy or process driven, Keith? It's huge, right? Because the acquisition process was all built around hundred percent of or you know, achieving and writing as much requirements in the process uh, as possible. But in agile procurements and agile development, you know, you can develop these proof of concepts and these pilots, then get to production and scale in meaningful um, and with intent to deliver capability a lot quicker. But also, you'll be able to cut off or, or um, what I call fail fast, right? If you if you use the agile methodology, you would be able to make go no-go decisions and be able to save a whole lot more money in that process as, as they move forward. And that's what we're talking about when you're in your cloud journey, when you're in the, uh, towards the development of uh, building out multi-cloud. These are the things that, that we can learn a lot through the software factories. All right. You've used the word complex or complexity a number of times in this conversation, rightfully so. But especially at the beginning, we talked, you talked about the complexity of the vehicles themselves. Right. Is that necessary because of the complexity of the technology, the goods and services that the, the people will use to, uh, the vehicles for to procure? Or is that something that yeah, maybe the technology is complex, but maybe we can streamline the vehicles themselves to make the process work easier and better for everybody. Absolutely. So when we talk about the, and and I don't see the problem more at the technology, I, I, I talk about the entire, how, how you achieve an IT infrastructure that can deliver capabilities to the, uh, the, American citizens and the taxpayers, right? So when we look at that entire ecosystem and we look at how the workforce is developed, how the processes work, and with the technology, we're really looking at the whole entire organization, organizational change. It's not just one part, right? So when we look at the acquisition process, there's definitely some ways that you can streamline by building multiple acquisitions to deliver capabilities, but not trying to do the one big bang theory. Because today, if we try to build a one-stop solution, we, we tend to um, get in that trap of what's within scope, what's out of scope, right? And that delivery model is, is not so much effective. So building a marketplace, um, a number of uh, procurement vehicles to deliver capability in the long run will be able to satisfy the different journeys that the agencies are on, right? So not every agency is 
at, at the same point in time, building out their capabilities all in, in a synchronized effort. So the acquisition solutions have to be flexible, but it should be more than one in order to deliver capability moving forward. Keith Nakasone, uh, Big Bang Theory, great television show, lousy acquisition strategy. It's great to have you on the program. Great. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the contracting issues Keith and I discussed in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, coming on the next Daily Scoop podcast, cybersecurity pressure for the Defense Department. The former CISO at DOD, Jack Wilmer, is on the next Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Navy's Supercomputing Resource Center will get new power under a $700 million contract the Army Corps of Engineers will manage. That power will drive edge computing for the service. Commander Juliana Vita, U.S. Navy retired, is Group Vice President and Chief Strategy Advisor at Splunk. She's former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy. Juliana, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I take you back to your CH-46 days. When you're sitting in the cockpit of that copter, what do you need out of your edge computing to make the decisions that you need to make as you're flying that aircraft? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. What do I need as a pilot in the cockpit? Uh, frankly, I, I'm not thinking about the technology that's delivering it, but what I need right now is relevant, timely, trusted information that I can use. Um, whatever, however it's displayed, wherever it presents itself into the cockpit needs to be something I can look at and, and trust. That's the first part and be able to figure out how does this, how does this matter to me as a pilot right now? Um, th there's so much information and data out there, as you know, as, as all of your guests talk about all the time and, and technology leaders across the government all are very aware of there's more data than we know what to do with. But when you are talking about pilots in the cockpit and I mean, let's just talk about recent movies that may have come out recently that folks may have seen about, you know, the decision-making process in the cockpit. And I'll bet when you watch those movies, you're thinking, holy crap, how do they make those decisions in like split second? Because they trust the information that's presented to them in the cockpit right then in the moment. That's it. That's all they care about. And hopefully a firelight doesn't go off and hopefully there's no emergency too. But extraneous stuff, you know, pilots don't care about the technology that's behind it. They just want information presented that they can make a snap decision because people's lives truly, truly can be at risk in any given moment. So what makes that information that's presented to that pilot trustable? What is it when you're thinking through that process in the milliseconds that you have to make those decisions? What makes you confident that you can make those decisions based on what's in front of you? Francis, I would say that that's, it's the same question that you would ask for a human being talking about, can you trust what another person is telling you? It's about a relationship build over time. It's about a symbiotic, we trust each other, we work together, that you build conversation by conversation, ready room discussion by ready room discussion, beer after beer, whatever it is, over time. And so pilots don't just show up in the cockpit you know, without having spent some time in flight school and, you know, working in squadrons. And all of that time is built around building a team, trusting each other. Does, does Goose trust Maverick? You know, whatever. Um, that is where the focus needs to be from the 
integrators that deliver capabilities to the technology providers that build the software to the training component folks that are showing pilots how to fly safely and how to make decisions. That is all a very lengthy process of human trust relationships. And I mean it, I mean, it's, I would not be comfortable in a cockpit as a pilot if I had to make a split second decision in a wartime scenario, if I truly didn't trust my commanding officer or something bad had happened in the squadron and I knew that they tried to brush it under the carpet. All of that matters so that when I'm looking at data that's provided to me in the cockpit, I go, yeah, these people have my back and they would never present something to me that wasn't true. It's, it's not a technical answer, but it's a people and process answer. And I think it's entirely relevant across all mission areas every minute of every day. No, and that's exactly what I wanted to get at, Juliana, because then I want you to take me from the cockpit of the aircraft to the Don CIO office where you flip that and you're building the system that's necessary to create that trust. You're not just putting another technology system in place. You're yep. building that trust literally for that pilot to be able to make those decisions that we just described, right? Yeah, exactly. So when I go back in my mind in the Wayback Machine to when I was in, in the Pentagon on, on the Navy staff, um, I remember times where I had to listen to conversations where some of the systems commands folks were trying to pitch a technology and why they should get approval or an ATO or whatever. And sometimes they would literally make stuff up, you know, like, well, in the cockpit, you know, the pilot needs to have an electronic this and that because the paper charts just they're a hazard and, and they can cause accidents. And I'm like, time out. <laughs> Who on this call has actually been in a cockpit? Oh, me. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with you. So let's get up. Let's get beyond the you're trying to pitch me on something and let's talk real. Let's talk truth about what's going on in the cockpit. And once I did that, I could have a real conversation with with people and we're all on the same team. And it used to just shock me how people from different parts of the organization or the, in the program office or in the resourcing side or whatever, forgot that we're all on the same team. We're all about keeping warfighters operationally effective and safe so that they can land and get back to their families. And so I just, when you asked that question, I just had this flashback to that is a true story that actually happened. And I was like, give me a break, you guys, like, let's just not try to pull the wool over each other's eyes. And that happens all day, every day in the Pentagon and around the government, Francis, and it needs to stop. We need to be honest with each other and realize we're all on the same team. What do you think changes that culture, Juliana? I really think that these days I do see more transparency and more openness, which I'm grateful for. Leaders are willing to get up and share information across inside one organization, across with other organizations, whether that's so on social media networks, or it's through conversations with you, or it's um, you know big keynote presentations or whatever. I see more honesty about yeah, we need help with this. You know, we'll, we really messed this up ten years ago, and we could use your help now. That kind of didn't happen five years ago or ten years ago. So thankfully, I see more of that. So from the top down, there needs to be a culture of we have to be open and honest about what we're good at and what we're not good at and where we need help and where we're the experts. So that's one is just open and honest conversation. And I truly think that the mix of military and government, uh, I'm sorry, military, industry and career civilian, that mix has to continue. It cannot be government versus industry. The, the days are gone where the government could buy, they could, I'm sorry, build, they could build the best stuff. 
We're way beyond that. Everyone knows that. But this, this notion of can government trust industry, that's still there. There's still a lot of mistrust that, oh, commercial industry is just there to take all of our money and they're not going to help us. Not true, especially when people like myself and other former government and military people, we are industry now. And we, you can trust us. And so what's needed is a continuous partnership, not an us versus them, but how can we do better together? And I, the, the we, the collective we, those of us that care about this country, the world and, and peace and democracy, we all need to do better with that. In the partnership that you just described, what is the healthy contribution that each side makes to that, that partnership? I think the healthy balance and the healthy contribution of each person in that each partner in that is the industry truly does bring the technology. Uh, we bring the agility, we bring the resources, we bring um, the often the, the creativity in terms of the technology, but that is nothing without the domain expertise of the military. They're out there on the tip of the spear. They know um, this piece of technology is helpful or not helpful in the cockpit or on the ship or in the tank. No, that's too big to put in a tank or whatever. That's the operational domain expertise. And then I'll say from the civilian, the, the professional civilian um, um, point of view, their history and their knowledge of how the government has traditionally purchased things, how the government should purchase things, you know, that long-term continuity of experience and knowledge, I think all of that is valuable. And when any of that is missing, it, it just gets back to an us versus them without sharing the goodness that each of us brings to the table. And Lord knows by this time, Francis, there are so many examples that we can point to, to say, see, this is how good looks when we let it work together. This is what we mean by partnership. There are enough examples now. They're, they didn't exist maybe 10 years ago, but they exist now. And so that, that's like the healthy balance, I think. You got to exactly where I wanted to go next, which is we're at a point now where these examples exist that somebody can say, oh, that worked for them. So we should probably do the same thing. Maybe not copy it outright, but at least take the best practices and be able to apply them. Yeah, exactly. And um, one that comes immediately to mind, it's, um, dare I say, it's a little outdated now because it was a whopping you know, two years ago, but <laughs> when, um, when COVID came and, you know, we all had to go remote and all of that, the, the department of defense, I give them a lot of credit for taking what they kind of talked about for a while plans on the shelf with remote work. And they, they literally had to turn that on and make it operational within, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours. It was a very short time frame. Um, they got over their mental anguish. They, they did a real risk analysis of, yeah, we still have these questions, but they're worth it's worth taking the risk. Otherwise, our workforce is absolutely not going to be effective at all. They already had the partnerships with technology. They already had the platform in place. All that had to happen was a trust switch to go on and say, we trust industry enough now to put our workforce in your hands. Go make it work. And guess what? It worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that was not a that was technology, technology, technology wise, not a heavy lift. But culturally, that was a huge step. What do yeah. you see as the ability to leverage that idea and, and keep that momentum? Because people in all three of the services told me, and I'm paraphrasing, but the, the sentiment generally was, we just had to. We didn't have any choice. We were forced to do it by the circumstances of the pandemic. 
But that lesson that they all have learned is sometimes we can just do that. Sometimes we can hit the gas pedal where we have done the risk analysis uh, and, and we have the benefit. They didn't have the benefit of that during the pandemic, obviously. But I, that's a muscle now that I think a lot of the a lot of people in the services didn't know they had. Now they know they have it. How do you maintain that muscle? Well, muscle is a great analogy because muscles atrophy if mm-hmm. you don't use them. Exactly. So unless unless people continue to share that story, because that workforce is going to move out, those people that are in uniform in the Pentagon are not going to be there. In fact, they're not. Half of them are not there now because they're back out in the fleet or in the field. Um, and then on the federal civilian side, same thing. People come in and out. That muscle needs to be flexed and and put on display every day at the gun show, you know, because people are going to forget what a Herculean effort that really was. Tell the story. Get the senior leaders to talk about what you just said. Hey, let's not wait for the burning platform next time. Um, we don't have to wait until we're shot in the face to react. Let's let's be on the offense here and not on the defense. Juliana Vita, great conversation. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about computing at the edge in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We're looking for nominations for leaders in the federal IT community. You can read more about how to nominate someone through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The competition for cyber talent is heating up across government. Agencies are poaching talent from other agencies so much. The director of the Office of Personnel Management says agencies should be on an equal footing. Suzette Kent is CEO of Kent Advisory Services. She's former federal chief information officer. Suzette, welcome. Thanks for joining me again. It's great to see you. You said something before we started recording about cyber talent that I think is the crux of the issue. You've put it this way. The nature of the competition is changing. In what way do you see the nature of the competition for cyber talent changing? Welcome, Suzette. You you know, I am a a passionate advocate for the workforce and particularly the technology workforce in both public and private sector. And I I am um, that the nature of the competition is changing because what we saw during the pandemic is that many employers recognized that they could they could successfully deliver their mission, whether it's government agencies or in large private sector companies with a remote workforce. They made investments in the tools. They, you know, hardened, I'll say, you know, operating procedures. And they what they saw is that employees liked that environment. Um, you know, it, it let them reach into markets and, and places that they couldn't before. And that I'm having conversations with private sector employers, um, you know, and obviously government too, but specifically private sector where they will say now that large um, nationwide employers are saying, hey, you can live and work anywhere. They're losing employees to people that were were never, um, they were never in competition with before. And the working environment tools and flexibilities are now kind of forefront when people are thinking about jobs in a way that they weren't, um, say, maybe, you know, five years ago. And often, too, when people are looking for new opportunities, they looked in their physical jurisdiction. They looked in commutable distances. And that's not, uh, you know, 
that that maybe doesn't matter so much anymore. So the nature of the competition for talent has significantly changed. And, you know, Director Ahuja's point is, hey, you know, we have some federal agencies who have an element pay (laughs) that that is um, differentiates opportunities at one agency from others. When, you know, when that started, we wanted to recognize um, and retain and, and pull levers to keep great cyber talent. We we do need to extend that everywhere in the government. And we have we have to pull every lever we can because that is such a competitive set, you know, of professional individuals. And you know, compensation is one of those. And not just cross, not just parity within the government, but broader parity across. Um, public and private sector. So Director Ahuja called the cyber talent management system at uh, DHS the king of programs within the federal government. And Angie Bailey, when she was the Chico at DHS, came on this program right after that came into being and said, any other agency can do exactly the same thing uh, as, as we're doing at DHS if Congress will give it authorization to do so. Is that what it's time to do? Is it time for Congress to just say, this is how the entire federal government should be able to do this, Suzette? Yeah, Francis, I would absolutely advocate for that because, um, again, it does it, it, it signals um, the importance. It increases the um, advantages of competing with private sector. You know, it, it, inside our government, it, it helps um, level the playing field on competition so that individuals are making choices based on mission and team and, you know, other things like that. And to your point, it's not just authorities, but it's also funding, right? And, and there has to be a recognition within the agencies that certain roles um, need commitment to funding in, in a manner that is going to help us not just hire, but better retain. You know, you and I talked about before that the average tenure in some of these roles is 18 to 24 months. And we have we have incredible goals and we have an unprecedented, you know, threat environment right now. And, you know, so so we need both more people and we need to increase duration. And that's a way, you know, that, that we can make some progress on that. That is a tactic we can use to make progress there. No, no, you're, as you're talking to private sector organizations, my understanding is they're experiencing the same challenges the federal government is. It's not peculiar to government. Have they found any solutions that the government could employ? Huh. Oh, Francis, it's exactly the same conversation. It was actually, in some cases, it's almost, uh, it's almost eerie how similar it is. They, in some cases, they have more levers that they can pull. They can um, move more quickly sometimes on flexibilities. They can, uh, you know, change comp- uh, compensation. Um, many times the investment in ongoing individual training and career development is seen as an advantage. And some of those are looking into those types of programs. But one of the conversations I have with them is one of the same ones um, that went on in government, but sometimes they can do them in bigger ways is, do we create, how do we create more supply? And do we create more supply through 
internship programs, through exchange programs, through um, using alternative pathways, companies that uh, focus on certification skills in as a complement or in conjunction with, you know, traditional educational pathways. So sometimes, um, you know, government has made specific investments, but, you know, companies that are uh, deeply embedded in their communities can get involved at the, you know, secondary education and, you know, other types of ways to um, encourage more supply and a big, bigger workforce. And, you know, I think those are the things we still have to keep asking ourselves in the government, how do we do more? There's there's quite a few there, but the number of open positions absolutely tells us we yeah. have to do more. Yeah, there just aren't enough bodies to put in all the spots. And, and it's going, it appears to be going in the wrong direction and not the right direction from what it sounds like. Well, the... Um, we were already a little behind the curve mm-hmm. from the supply and demand standpoint, and then the demand went up. And so when you actually look at the number of professionals, it's, it is unfortunately not, it is not significantly increased, you know, in the last, you know, five or so years, right? It's, it's slowly creeping up. The demand is going up like a hockey stick, Yeah. right? The need. And so, um, you know, we're not moving at the speed of business in aligning, you know, the 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 way that we the opportunities to get people to get people in. And th- those who are, uh, you know, getting more creative are seeing more success. And those who look at um, other things that they can do, th- those who are focusing on both um acquiring and, and getting people interested out of diverse channels are doing well. And many who are focusing on how do we retain them? And so you, they're kind of looking at both ends of the spectrum with, with renewed energy. Suzette Kent, it's great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks very much. You too, sir. Have a great weekend. You can read more about the battle for cyber talent in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.